1: I'm being watched right now. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of the Tim Ferriss Show. I'm going to whisper right now and just assume that all of you have ASMR fetish or preference. And if you don't know what ASMR is, you should look it up. There's a huge community on Reddit, for instance. It stands for Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. And that's why I'm also going to bite this piece of shortbread right now. (laughs) I'm whispering because I'm in a Lufthansa lounge at JFK, that one's free Lufthansa, call me, and I can't be my usual boisterous self. But as per always on the Tim Ferriss Show, it's my job to deconstruct world-class performers, people who are very good at what they do, people who have interesting stories and very specific tactics, recommendations that you can implement in your own life. I'm going to finish that shortbread. My guest today, it's very appropriate that I should be in the airport because he travels more than any human being I have ever met. I've seen videos of him shaving in airport and airplane bathrooms, for instance. Phil Kogan, that's K-E-O-G-H-A-N, you can say hello on the Twitters at Phil Kogan, has worked in television for almost 30 years on more than a thousand program episodes in more than 100 countries. His work has earned him numerous awards, including 10 primetime Emmy Awards. He is perhaps best known as the co-executive producer and host of the perennial favorite CBS series, The Amazing Race, currently in its 29th season. But there's a lot more to Phil's story than you might know of or expect, including unbelievable bucket lists and how important they are to how his life has been run and improved and many of the decisions that he's made, a near-death experience, probably more than one, and much more. He is very good at proactively creating adventures for himself, and he's also a very impressive athlete on multiple levels. For instance, in 2013, he decided to retrace the 1928 Tour de France, riding an original vintage bicycle with no gears, weighs about or I'd say at least twice as much as modern bikes to tell the forgotten underdog story of the first English-speaking team to take on the toughest sporting event on Earth. He captured this entire experience and turned it into a brand new film, a documentary called The Le Ride, a gorgeous doc and the first to be shot on a Sony F-55 camera in 4K, which is the equivalent of Super 35 millimeter film. And you can check that out at philcoganleride.com and we will talk a lot more about that. But there are many things to take away from this conversation and I hope you enjoy it. As much as I did, so as I always say, without further ado, here is Phil Kogan. Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I am excited to have you here in Austin. Rainy Austin. Rainy Austin to sit across the table. Yeah. And to talk about your life and experiences, I don't even know where to start. And there are a few options, and I think I'm going to go with humor first. Okay, and I was hoping you could tell us a little bit and then we'll we'll spread out in both directions chronologically about Millie Vanilli and oh. Dreadlock Twirling.
0: Oh yeah, wow, yeah. Millie Vanilli. <laughs> so um I I started in television when I was really young like 18 and I really wanted to be a cinematographer and make sto- you know tell stories with a camera be in television. I was not popular with my family for making that choice cuz I wanted to go straight out of high school into uh working in television and there was no there were no degrees you could get in broadcasting or communications degrees and so against my family's better wishes I went and took this job it was hard to get where I was a television assistant and and then miraculously that led from me being a camera assistant to then being in front of a camera and I guess I was 20 and I was working on a daily live show it was called 345 live <sighs> That's how the thing went, 3.45, live, because it was on at 3.45 and it was live. And so anybody who was anybody who came to New Zealand came on this show, 3.45 live, Monday to Friday. And so Millie Vanilli make their way to New Zealand. And this is when they were like, they'd won the Grammy for Best New Artist. There were the, those songs, you know, those great songs, Blame It on the Rain. I'm trying to think of what the other songs were. But anyway, um, they came in and they were beautifully dressed and it like, like, looked like models male models the dreads were all beautifully kept and and they wouldn't sit down on the chair and the, the the manager was talking to them and there was no sort of like lead up to the to the chat they just sort of were off on one side talking amongst themselves and then we were about to go 345 live and then they sat down at the last minute and we're on the show live and why the, didn't they sit down they didn't want to crease their pants what <laughs> is what I suspected. <laughs> because the pants had these beautiful creases in them and like i said they were like beautifully dressed a lot of attention to detail and um so they they finally sat down and then in the middle of the interview i'm looking across i, I think it was uh, at fabrice because it was robin fabrice and i noticed that the dreadlock is detached from his head while he's twirling it <laughs> and and i'm and i, I was like uh like I, I'm figuring that, you know, this is I'm looking to see what whether it was noticeable on the monitor. And then I sort of turn around and I see behind me the manager is like gesturing to them to tell them that the dreadlock had become detached.
1: <laughs> I,
0: you know, now I, I mean I should have just gone with it, but I don't think they really had a sense of humor. <laughs> I don't think they would have thought that was funny. They were way too concerned with how they looked. <laughs> it would have been very off-putting.
1: How many segments, if you had to guess in total, do you think you've done of television, of any show? I, it, impossible to. I, I I don't know. Hundreds, thousands, thousands.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I'm gonna be fifty this year. I started in front of a camera at nineteen. So what is that? Thirty-one years. I don't know. I don't know. I did a lot of live television. So I did this show 345 live for a year. So there was 200 and something live shows. And then I did a daily live show called Breakfast Time in the early 90s. Tom Bergeron was the host. And then there were a number of us who were out on the road doing basically anything we wanted to do. They gave us a satellite truck, a camera operator, and a a production assistant. And we could go anywhere in America to do five stories from anywhere in America and we would go every day live and we'd have to do two stories from that place live. Everything from hand-feeding sharks live to changing a light bulb on the Verzana Bridge live to milking spiders to being in a coal mine or whatever it was. And so that was over the period of four and a bit years, that would have been close to 800 shows. And how old were you at the time when you did that? That was, I was 24, I think, somewhere, 24, 25. Okay, so before we go
1: into the nearer future... Oh, yeah. ...from million billion, to future, I
0: like that, yeah. <laughs> Half my life ago. Yeah. That's right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> in, the, in the grand scheme of the universe, the, the blinking of a firefly, back to age 19. Right. And... You had an experience that it seems has framed a lot of what came afterward. And I was hoping you could describe what happened.
0: Yeah. So when you're 19, most 19-year-olds, I don't think they're going to die. I certainly didn't think I was going to die. I was invincible. We used to do ridiculous things, think that we were somehow protected by the speed gods or whatever it was. And so... We did things that we probably shouldn't have done. And now, I think looking back on it, I'm just lucky to have got to this point in my life, I think. But, you know, we like putting ski bindings and skis and strapping them to a roof rack of a car and then going into a tuck and seeing how fast we could drive the car. <laughs> and, you know, as as fast as we possibly could. Anyway, I I was doing a story about a 22,000-ton shipwreck that had sunk in in new zealand and it was down about 120 feet underwater and it was on its starboard side 22,000 tons is like it's as big as you know a cruise liner that you see
1: going around uh, at the ports around the world and big really big and 120 feet uh for, for, for people who've never done any scuba diving unless you have special equipment i mean that's not a lot of bottom time
0: Exactly, so most recreational divers get certified to dive to about sixty feet. The best stuff that you see underwater is generally in the first thirty feet because once you get past thirty feet, the color changes, you you lose all the reds and everything becomes very blue. Um, so I always say to people, "Look, you don't need to go deep unless you're going onto a wreck or something. there's some real reason to go deep. The only reason to go deep is you know if it is a wreck you can get great diving in 10-15 feet of water with the coral close to the surface the colors are brighter and so on but this wreck was deep and 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 as you said the deeper you are the faster you chew through air and you eat up air and that affects how long you can stay down and the longer you're down deep the more nitrogen you get in your blood and so it's it there's a real science to diving and you have to be super careful as uh, you're a diver I am. Yeah, so you, you
1: understand I've that. I've seen people get nitrogen narcosis yeah. at, at, at exactly 120 feet. I saw a guy start to, tr- he tried to take off all of his gear and just drop it exactly. in a small group. And he was the, stopped by a That was a the dive guy master.
0: that worked at Chippendales. I know the guy. <laughs> no, no is no, a different guy. No, a different guy. Uh, okay. No, but, uh, but people, yeah, I've seen the same thing. They take the regulator out and they start having conversations with fish. It's not a good idea. No. It's getting narked. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So uh, that's all the more reason to get properly certified. So um, I was with some very experienced divers and way more experienced than me. And they were were doing the salvage. And we were going to be the first people to shoot on the ship, get to go inside the ship and explore it. And the the um, cameraman that I was with was also very experienced, but because there was uh, because the, there's so much silt inside the boat, and there was a current as well rolling through the boat, we were we and we in those days we were shooting on film. It's not like today where you could go down with a great uh, GoPro and some lights, and you know you could film for a couple of hours. We had a, a two and a half minute roll of film in a 100 foot daylight spool roll that was in a little housing inside the ca- so literally that's the only amount of footage we had to shoot on film that's how long i go back so the the plan was that we would go into the ballroom of the of the ship and big big ballroom and then the crew would come in from another door and we would meet in the middle so that we didn't stir up all the silt going into the same entrances and we'd swim towards each other they'd get us coming towards them and So we go down, and what I know now is if you go into a wreck, you tie a line on the outside of the wreck so that you have something to follow out if something goes wrong. These guys were so familiar with the wreck and so experienced and knew the place so well. They didn't tie a line on, and I just sort of followed them in not knowing that that was sort of what you should do and you know the other rule with diving is you never leave your dive buddy so i'm following this guy and i was too scared to tell him because i was trying to be a man that before that i was i'm really claustrophobic so i go in this little doorway and it would have been like let's imagine a small window like two by three we go through this little porthole and then we start weaving our way through the ship and i as we go going deeper and deeper and deeper into the shipwreck, I'm completely disoriented. I have no idea where I am. Like my
1: hand sweats just listening to the description.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, and I started to breathe, like, breathe. But every time I sort of, like, was at the point of tapping him to go, oh, you know, I got to get out of here. I feel panicky. He just kept disappearing deeper and deeper and deeper in another corner, another corner, and I thought, and he was moving quickly because he's he's used to being in this wreck. They're doing the salvage on this thing. So finally... We we come into an opening and then he shines the light around and there's this huge ballroom. Now the ship is on its starboard side, on its right side. So all the tables on a ship are all bolted to the floor. So imagine the tables on a right angle to us. And then he gestures to me to hold on to the table. And then he told me on the surface that he we were gonna switch out the lights. Uh, to save battery power because it's cold and now we don't have a lot of uh we've got seven mil wetsuits on it's pretty cold and you can feel kind of the current pushing through the ship and that's why we're holding onto the table so we didn't drift in in, you know through the room and now we're looking ahead and he sort of points at me and looks ahead and says that's where the crew's going to come out and i knew that that's where they're going to come out so i was like okay so we're waiting with the lights off in the dark and i'm processing all of this and starting to try to slow my breathing down and like, stay calm. It's okay. You know, you're with an expert. Everything's good. And, uh, after what seemed like, like minutes, I wanted to turn my light on, but I also didn't want to do it. Cause I thought he'll think I'm a wimp. Like, why am I turning my, I just wanted to turn my light on to see where I was, like to have some, some sense of where I was. He flicks his light on like, in Halloween when you take your light and you put it at the chin Gosh. and you make yourself look scary, right? <laughs> That's all I remember. The light went on. It's he's pointing from his chin, looking up. He looks scary. Then he gestures me with his hand, puts it out in front of me, like, wait. Then he points at my hands on the table, like, and gestures for me to hold onto the table. And then boom, he just disappears around a corner and I don't have my light on. He's got his light on it and the light disappears and he's gone. Well, in that moment, I'm like, why is he leaving? Why did he just leave? So in, in my haste to find my light, to I'm, I start flailing around, let go of the table, and I feel myself drifting away from where the table is and moving, drifting in, into the ballroom. And I just went into a mad panic, and I couldn't find my light. By the time I found my light, I'd silted up all the water around me. I couldn't see anything. And now I don't know where the table was that I was meant to hold on to. And I'm looking ahead. I can't see any lights. I can't see him. And I started to breathe really, really fast. And now you're a diver. You understand this. But yeah. when, when you dive, and for anybody who's never uh, had a regulator in their mouth, if you breathe too quickly, there's a little diaphragm that allows for exhalation and inhalation in the, in the regulator that you put in your mouth to suck in air. If you go too fast, the diaphragm can't keep up with the speed of inhalation and exhalation. And then you start to suck water. And then, so I started like taking little bits of water and I'm beating the, 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 the valve and just panicking, like mad, mad panic. And I thought, I have to get out of here and all you all you want to do is just get out right but i don't know how to get out i don't know where up and down is i don't the, the bubbles don't go up when the ship's on its side like that and you're deep down they hit the walls and then they run up the walls they, they they follow weird paths and i thought i have no idea where i am right now i can't even see where the table is and panicking panicking and i knew that someone had died in there uh someone had gone in there and got disconnected from a group and he had died and drifted off into the ship and died. I also knew that one of the engineers never made it out when the ship sank in the first place.
1: And just to set the stage also for people listening, I remember when I did uh, a dive at the blue hole in Mm. Belize, which is about 120 feet. This is when this guy got narked. It takes so long to get down because you're equalizing. Yeah. By the time you get down, at least we were told at the time with the gear we had, you have eight minutes. Yeah. So all of this is happening.
0: Yeah, very quickly. <laughs> very quickly. Very quickly. And we, we weren't on nitrox. Nitrox, as you know, is a, is, a, is a mixed gas that you can get where it has more oxygen and less nitrogen, so it increases your bottom time. So this is pre-nitrox days. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. We had a very limited window, which is why he must have gone off to find the crew because he realized we were eating up a lot of time. And where were they? Where were the crew? Well, I don't remember exactly how I got from there to the boat, but this guy obviously came back to get me. And really, it's all a blur between panicking, mad panic, eyes like wide like saucers, to being on the boat, to looking up into the sky and seeing the most amazing blue I'd ever seen in my life. Like just look like totally surreal. And then... And, and I'm lying on the ground, like, breathing, and I look up, and all these faces looking down, and, Phil, you good? You good? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm good, I'm good. Like, trying to play like nothing happened. But my heart is pounding, like, pounding. And I was so, like, the feeling the, the feeling of euphoria, the, the relief of being alive, to know that I was alive, was, was like nothing I'd ever experienced. And it really was all this stuff It was as if my IQ went up 25 points in that moment. You know what I mean? Because I was like, how dumb were you that you <laughs> thought you were going to live forever? How dumb were you that you did, you've been doing all these dumb things in your life and you have real, really have no purpose in life. And I started to think about, this is all happening while I'm having these conversations with them, but I'm like, I'm thinking, man. I, I love girls and I haven't even like really explored that whole world and
1: <laughs> that's like the second well, or third thing well, that comes up.
0: It was actually right up there. I mean, I was of I, course I my mean, sexual sense. prime. I mean, come on, it was right up there. I, I don't want to say it was the first thing because I don't want you to get the wrong idea about me, but it was up there. And I was like, damn, you know, you've got a lot to do with your life. So no, but there were all these things that came to me, and a lot of them were very selfish. I was 19 years old, so. Uh, I got myself together and I, I wanted to find a piece of paper and a pen and I just wrote down just everything that I felt like I had all the time in the world to do and that I had to get down on a piece of paper to get out, to go, okay, this is not a dress rehearsal. You can die. You will die. You don't know how long you've got before you die. You better figure out what you're doing with your life and you better get on with it straight away. And one of the first things on my list was go back in the shipwreck, (laughs) seriously, because I thought I cannot walk away from this fear. I was so petrified of what had happened. And I, and I decided I would explain to the diver, you know, that I found it challenging. He knew that
1: (laughs) (laughs) challenging,
0: but I said, it was like, kind of like falling off a horse. I really felt like, got to get back on, got to get back on. I have to go back. Because if I let this fear get on this top time of,
1: with some string or something. Well,
0: rope. I didn't actually go back with string because I didn't even I didn't I didn't have time to do the lesson about the string. Yeah, but I but I went back with by disclosing a little of more of my fear to the other diver and was more honest. And and then he when he knew that and we had to get this thing shot, he was obviously more aware of you know he thought I was so because I was so gung ho like. He didn't have any indication that there was any fear in me at all. Right. But then I kind of said, you know, listen, man, I, I really freaked out. He goes, oh, no kidding. And I, and I said, but I need to go back. We've got to go back and do this. And we went back and we did it and we shot it. And that was the start. That was the
1: first thing I ticked off my, my list. Question for you. So when you decided to go back down yeah, as you're descending Still petrified. and getting ready to go through that tiny opening, yeah, what was the self-talk? I mean, it's a long time ago, but... What What is your self-talk like in a moment like that?
0: Well, it's something that I've used a lot since then, which was instead of internalizing everything, I looked out. And what I realized was that this guy was super experienced and had been down on that shipwreck many times and come out of there successfully many times. And if I followed his procedure and if I observed him being an expert doing something and looked out at that rather than turning it back into my own head about what I didn't know and what I couldn't do, that I was in good hands. So ever since that moment and all the crazy things that I've done, I've taken a tremendous amount of comfort in being surrounded by people who I know are better at me at doing something who have tremendous expertise at whatever they're doing and to really observe them in that moment when they are in their, when they are using expertise that possibly they have taken, that has taken possibly at least 10,000 hours to get to and, and to look at it in a way like, wow, how cool is that? I'm with this person, man or woman, whoever it is that is allowing me and giving me the privilege to be with them to do what they do so well and they're a specialist and
1: they're so good. And so you would be explicitly reminding yourself of all these things if you're going into a situation that is provoking nerves and fear. Is that yeah. the, the voice inside the head?
0: It is. It's I made up a quote which I really that I share with a lot of people, which is focus on what you do have and what you can do instead of what you don't have and what you can't do. And I really am a big believer in practicing to change mindset. So my daughter, who's 21, I say to her, Elle, you're young, you have this amazing, pliable brain. I said, if you practice being an optimist now at this young age, by the time you're my age, with 10,000 hours of practicing being an optimist, you're going to be an amazing optimist. If you practice focusing on what you do have and what you can do as opposed to what you don't have and what you can't do, you're going to be so good at using what's around you and focusing on what you can do with it that the negative stuff will be there, but it's going to be squashed by this positive energy that you have. And I said, the last thing you want to do is get to my age and be somebody who is so practiced at making excuses and so practiced at being a pessimist that it's hard to make the turn. You don't want to be fifty trying to make a turn, being an expert as a pessimist, and we've all met them. Sure. And you meet a pessimist or or uh, an ex, a, you know somebody who's great at excuses. Sometimes I will hear excuses and I will laugh out loud, and the person will look at me like, "What are you laughing?" And I'm like, "Dude, you are unbelievably good at excuses. This is like expert black belt. You are you are a black belt in excuses." <laughs> and and so, I, I, and I never think it's too late to change. I'm just saying that it's harder to change because I really believe like the mind is like a sponge and it's harder and harder to keep that sponge moist as you get older. Right. But I really started to practice that. So I've really, I've all my life I've tried to put myself around people and or I've gravitated towards people who see that things are possible and that things, that, that anything is possible. And to me, it's like magic. I feel like I'm around you know magicians who, who make things happen out of nothing, and I feel very honored that with all the stuff that I've done in my life, I've met so many of these people.
1: So I want to talk about optimism and learning or teaching optimism it, because what you were just saying reminded me of a conversation I had with a a close friend of mine. He's uh, not uh, not much older, but a bit older. He has uh, a number of kids and. I asked him when we were hiking once, what would your advice be to a first-time parent? And he said, really, it's only two things. And he said, number one, your kids don't owe you anything because mm-hmm. you chose to have them. Yes. Number one. Yep. Number two is teach your kids to be optimists. Yep. And he said, if you teach them to be optimists, they can handle almost everything
0: else. That's great advice, by the way. And I totally agree with it.
1: How would you or how do you help to cultivate optimism in your daughter or in other people? What types of patterns would you interrupt or what types of things would you have them do? Uh, Does anything come to mind?
0: Yeah, I think well, going to those two points that you mentioned, practice optimism, right? So one of the rules that we had in our house with my daughter is, and, and we all had to correct each other from time to time. We had this game where nobody was allowed to say, I can't. We took, I can't out of the vocabulary in our house and we all did it, but we all got better and better at not doing it. And I wanted my daughter to practice that. And she'd say, well, dad, there's just certain things I can't do. And I go, yeah, but you don't want to be saying or perpetuating the idea that you can't do something. So find another way of saying that you find something challenging or that it's difficult without saying I can't. Because we don't know what we are truly capable of. We have no idea what our full potential is, which is the exciting part of living, right? We, we have no idea where we're going to end up or how we're going to get there. So if you take that out and you say, I find this really challenging. Is there a way that you can help me do this? You can identify something that you find really challenging, but take that out of your Take I can't out of your vernacular mm-hmm. and you'll be in a much more positive f- frame of mind. With my daughter, and, and, and I think with kids when they're young, just allow them to dream without putting your own limitations on what it is they think they can do or they say they want to do. I remember my daughter came up to me when she was about nine. I, I would always read to her every night. That was my thing. I would read some piece of a book to her, so we had that time together.
1: Any favorite books? Do you remember?
0: Well, we read all of the Harry Potter books together. I read every page to her. My daughter's quite a sharp cookie, and sometimes I'd be tired and I'd skip a few pages of the books, but she'd remember <laughs> every single page. And she'd go, "Dad," and I'd go, "I'd go what?" And she'd go, "You skipped a part, didn't you?" <laughs> like, I oh. have to roll back. To me, it was just about that one-on-one time where you know, we were together and I looked forward to it. And the other, the other rule I had was if my daughter ever asked me to do something, no matter what I was doing, no matter, even if I was on a deadline, if she said, dad, can we go play with the dog, kick a football, play volleyball, will you read to me? That I would always say, yes, that
1: was the thing I, the rule that I had, which I really value. What would you say in that case? in moments when you are a very, very busy guy, you have a lot going on, you've done so much. Let's just say hypothetically, and I'm sure there were these times that you are under a crunch deadline. There are people maybe metaphorically yelling and screaming because they want something by a certain time and your daughter comes up to you and asks you for something. And uh, I'm not going to ask this for everything, but I'm very curious. What would you say to yourself or what was the way that you would ensure that you said yes does that make sense aside from practice of course it takes practice but
0: well i think it's the the idea that in life life is a series of moments and what will you remember at the end of your life you know when you take your last breath what's the last thought you're going to have as you die you know what is that is it some moment with somebody is it some regret is it you know you want to die i think in peace and with something special and so those moments where where your kid asks you to do something they're limited when you have them. Mm-hmm. It's a gift, right? That, the whole idea that you have a child, you never get that back. Yeah. The deadline thing, there were many times where I put what I was doing on hold and spent the time with her, and then it cost me into the night trying to f- make up the time. But I can't even remember what it was I was trying to get done. But I do remember the moments with her. Right. So in the long term, those are the moments that you remember. I couldn't tell you what deadlines I was rushing to get done that I theoretically sacrificed to go spend time with my daughter. So I I said to a lot of people, I was forced into creating this life list and writing this book and trying to help other people with my philosophy of no opportunity wasted because I had this experience. A lot of people don't have that experience. And I say to them, if you were to take your last breath tomorrow at 3 o'clock, what do you think would be the last thing in your mind? I kind of get them to just project to that. And it could be something as simple as I always wanted to write a book. I always wanted to start my own business. I always wanted to play the guitar, or I always wanted to spend one-on-one time with my dad, or I wish that I'd repaired that
1: relationship with my brother because we haven't spoken. Is that a good way to start such a list? I always wanted to dot, dot, dot.
0: Yeah. I really think when you put something down on paper, it sounds so simple. It's like a pen and a piece of paper. Just write down something. I really believe that it it's not a small thing. That's like almost like a contract that you've made with yourself. Just putting it down. The other thing I say to people is don't just put it down, but write it down and then put it on a sticky and put it everywhere where you go, where you have like little moments when you're brushing your teeth or when you go out to get your keys from the garage and you put the sticker next to the keys. So things that you, places and and wool spaces that you repeatedly hit on the refrigerator places that you, your mind goes to every single day around the house, in the car, wherever it is, little reminders of, well, why am I not doing that?
1: So I want to touch on a couple of things you said. The first is a a recommendation for people who are listening because that had a huge impact on me, which is an article called the tail end written by, Someone named Tim Urban, who has a site called Wait But Why, which is very intelligently written. And uh, this was recommended to me by a friend, Matt Mullenweg, who's also been on the podcast. Uh, And coincidentally, he recommended it to me, I want to say a few months before his father unexpectedly passed away. And the point of the article, and I'm not going to do it justice, everyone should read it, was that it was effectively directed at kids, kids who are now adults. And uh, it was an encouragement to spend more time with. Your parents, because it said effectively by the time you leave high school and leave home to go to college, you've spent, say, 80% of the total hours you will ever spend with your parents before they die. Wow! Now, you could look at it the other way around, right? As a parent, that by the time your kids leave high school or leave home, you will have spent or had the opportunity to spend 80% of the hours you're ever going to spend with them together. Mm. So that makes perhaps, that type of framing makes it easier to push off the deadline yeah. and sacrifice a little bit of sleep. So that, that article had and continues to have a big impact on me. The, the second was uh, more of a question, I suppose, about the I can't. And uh, <laughs> I really think that our words, our language reflects our thinking. Yeah, in I a very, totally very important way. So word choice Absolutely. has over time become more and more important to me. And I've tried to fix certain ticks. For instance, <laughs> this is going somewhere. For a long time, I realized I was very lazy with adverbs and I used pretty too much. Oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty smart. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. And I just, it was such a garbage word that I used as filler. Yeah. So I forced myself to say fucking after pretty every time I said it. So I'd have to say, that's pretty fucking interesting. That's pretty fucking Mm. difficult to pattern interrupt because I would embarrass myself in mixed company. And that is how ultimately I ended up stopping using this adverb, at least as much as I used to. And I've tried to help other people who have tics like, um, or like to do something similar. And there are a couple of different approaches. What would you say if you caught, say, your daughter saying, I can't, was it just, would you just raise a finger or what was the, the button that you would push?
0: Well, it got to a point where she would catch me too because right. I would say it. Right. And so it would just be, ah, well, you know, it's like, you know, we would just call each other out. Right. It was more that we were, she became hyper aware of it because we pointed it out to each other. Right. And I became hyper aware of the times that I would sometimes say it too. Funny you should say about word choices one of the first shows that I ever worked on was called That's Fairly Interesting. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about this, so yeah. <laughs> okay, so this speaks to the New Zealand psyche, okay? So in America, we watched a show in America called That's Incredible. Right. Well, John, that was incredible, yeah. right? Yeah. In New Zealand, there is a tendency for high achievers to understate their achievements, Yeah. okay? So we in New Zealand could not have said, that's amazing we had to say in a new zealand accent it would be oh yeah that's fairly interesting (laughs) and the other thing we would say is some new zealand new Zealander could do something that was groundbreaking but in new zealand because it was a new zealander who had maybe achieved this groundbreaking idea we would say oh it's pretty good (laughs) oh that's or they'd say oh yeah that's pretty good for a New Zealander. And I was I was talking, I did an interview with Peter Jackson and he said the number of times that a studio would call his agent panicking about something that Peter Jackson was making because they'd get on the phone with Peter Jackson and they'd say to Peter, how's it going? You know, how's the cut going on the film? And Peter would say, oh yeah, no, it's pretty good. It's coming together and looking pretty good. And all the executives back in LA would start panicking because they'd be like, he sounds less than enthused that this is going to work. So then his, he'd get off the phone and then his agent would call him, Peter, Peter, what's wrong? Is there a problem with the production? And Peter goes, no, it's it's fine. Why? He goes, well, they're panicking. They didn't think you sounded very excited about what's going on. But that's that's a huge part of our, our psyche is understating what you're doing.
1: Now, I'd love for you to elaborate on why that's the case. So one of my closest friends is a Kiwi, and he loves New Zealand, uh, but he has mixed feelings because he talks a lot about tall poppy syndrome.
0: Yes,
1: Could, you, could yes. you maybe explain what that is? Oh,
0: that's one of my favorite topics of conversation. If you imagine a field full of poppies, they're all beautifully uniformed, and all the poppies in the field are in, you know, at the same exact height, and you look out, and it's so... Comfortable to look at because every single poppy is within a millimeter of each other and it just looks so lovely and uniformed. And then you cast your eye over to the other side of the field and you see, oh my goodness, there's a poppy sticking up and it's taller than all the other poppies. What could that possibly be? Oh, that's some guy showing off. He thinks he's better than all the other poppies in the field and he's sticking up there showing off. Well, we'll fix that. Get a pair of scissors and you cut that tall poppy down. And now everything is beautiful and uniformed again. And we don't have to worry about that tall poppy, do we? <laughs> so it's, it's, part, it's, it's, it's part of our psyche to keep everybody like the common man. Mm-hmm. So the New Zealand rugby team, they're called the All Blacks. We wear an All Black uniform. We have a silver fern on the uniform the most successful sports
1: team in sports history and if people haven't seen the haka correct they need to watch the haka just
0: google that just go new zealand all black rugby team haka h a k a h a k a it's a maori name which is a, it's a maori war dance and they would and and, and now a lot of uh, american football teams have actually copied it as a way of getting psyched up but when the in, in, the indigenous people of new zealand the maori people before going to war, they would get themselves psyched up doing this haka. And, they, and, and it involves a lot of different moves and slapping themselves and basically getting themselves hyped and ready to go. And now we use it as a way to get hyped before our rugby games. And if you, if you see this, it's pretty powerful. So the All Blacks have a winning percentage, I think, of over 75% in the last 100 years, right? Very rarely do we, do we lose. But if you speak to any of them and they've they been the world champion, the only rugby team in the world to be world champions three times, only rugby team in the world to win back-to-back championships. If you talk to an All Black and you go, wow, you guys are amazing. You're incredible players. Uh, the best. You're the best. An All Black or a New Zealander who's a high achiever will tend to undersell and go, oh, yeah, no, it's really nothing. You know, We would we just, you know, we just went in and did our thing and um, – yeah we just happened to beat the other team but they played really well the other team they actually, yeah but you you beat them 85-0. <laughs> well yeah I know but uh you know we just had a good day and uh no you know hats off to the other team and that's what you do you undersell and then it's it's part of our psyche to be just like everybody. Now it's hugely endearing in one in one way because New Zealanders and 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 I feel like I'm one of these people where I perform better when the expectations from me are lower than when people expect a lot from me. I don't cope with that very well. When, when I have to go do a speech, I do a lot of speeches when everybody's expectation of my speech is that it's going to be, you know, I'm going to head it out of the park and it's going to be really great. It makes me nervous because I feel like, okay, so you feel like I'm meant to hit this mark. Where, Where do I go from there? I don't know where to go from there. I have to like hit it out of the park twice. I don't know. What, what do I do? Just to
1: get a passing grade, right?
0: Exactly. Whereas if people's expectations are, oh, we, we think Phil will do a good job and, you know, it should be good. If their expectations are there, then I love that space that's left for me to go punch above that and go hit it out of the park, right? Because there's nothing better when you exceed people's expectations. So I think New Zealanders, they, they always... Try to underplay where they're at so that they can exceed expectations. So what, what you find with a lot of New Zealanders is incredibly hardworking. They'll tend to undersell themselves, and they tend to surprise. They tend to come out of nowhere and just like, I had no idea you could do that. And so I've just finished working on a project. For the Smithsonian Channel where I talk to a a bunch of New Zealanders about inventiveness because if there's one word I would use to describe what Kiwis are They're incredibly resourceful and inventive We've invented a lot of amazing things and we find ways of doing things in new and different ways because we're kind of forced to think and and I love that about our culture, but sometimes when we come to an environment like in America we're a little reluctant to put our hand up and go, I got this. And other people who sometimes make a lot of noise maybe don't have the same skills, but they're much better at making a lot of noise.
1: Just because this is is one of my favorite topics. Uh, That's not really, topics isn't the right word for it. One of my favorite things to observe is Kiwis and Aussies going after each other.
0: Oh yeah, that's just boring. So
1: (laughs) now, uh, (laughs) what are the most common go-to insults that Aussies use against Kiwis and vice versa. Well,
0: all sheep jokes
1: go across the Tasman,
0: right? A lot of people don't realize that it's a three-hour flight between New Zealand and Australia. We we still have people calling up New Zealand tourism going, how long does it take to drive across the bridge from New Zealand to Australia? (laughs) (laughs) And you think I'm joking. (laughs) That's amazing. No, no, (laughs) because Sydney and Auckland both have bridges that look quite similar. And they think that if you drive over the bridge, from in sydney or in auckland that's what's on the other side so they're like what hold on a second makes me feel a lot better about the u.s now three hours what are you talking about so we're like the little brother okay so we're we're four million people they are 20 something million people okay so we've always felt like they're the big brother that wants to beat us up but we're going to prove ourselves
1: to the big brother so
0: yes any sheep joke we don't need to go into the details. That's a sexual innuendo. One. Yeah, just
1: oh, come on. This isn't family programming. What's what's one good one?
0: Well, the one that gets told a lot is why do Australians make love to sheep with their gumboots on, so that the hind legs of the sheep can be held in the gumboots, or why do Australians make love to sheep on the edge of cliffs so they'll push back harder. I mean, there's there's. Look, I mean, <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah.
1: Well, well, I mean, it's, if if you need some quick draw ammo, I mean, that's, that's not a bad one to have in the yeah, back pocket,
0: but I've been to rugby matches in Australia where you stand up in your chair and if there's an Aussie behind you and they know you're supporting the old blacks, they'll pour some beer down the back <laughs> of your chair. <laughs> and it, listen, it's, it's, it's a healthy rivalry. I think, you know, it's just, it's just that the Australians the Australians, to me, are, are, are closer to the American culture in terms of their sports psyche. They are really good at sport. You want to talk about believing in winning. Australians really, I think, exemplify that. New Zealanders, I think, less so. Again, I think New Zealanders, they want to come in under the radar and then exceed expectations. So they don't tend to use the same kind of psych up. And there's a lot of, like with the cricket matches... They call it sledging, you know, where the, the Australian cricket team are are out there on the pitch, in the middle of the pitch, and they'll be just going at the, you know, the opposition to talk them, psych them out, basically. Yeah. They have that edge about them. Yeah, the Australians
1: do different edge. seem to do more of that.
0: Yeah, and they're very successful, by the way. I don't want to, like, I mean, you look at the number of medals they win at the Olympics per capita. It's pretty high. We, we're up there as well, but I'm saying the Australians, they're... It's, 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 a, it's a great rivalry. Let's just say that. And so, I married an Australian, by the way. No,
1: I know. This is part of the reason I brought it up. So the, the, the Australians also tend to get, well, it depends on how, how drunk and sharp the Kiwis are at the time, but a lot of convict jokes get thrown at the Australians yeah. as well. Uh, for those people who want to be amused or completely confused, yes, <laughs> or maybe both, by Kiwi slash Australian humor, there's a video that <laughs> I feel like it was watched by everybody in New Zealand at one point called uh, Beach Days. Oh, oh, beach oh beach days, bro. Yeah, oh beach, beach days. days, bro. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> has to do with a, a whale and a, a, I think it's a seagull, among other things. You guys can look that up, and chances are you will not understand what's going on.
0: But yeah. but well, we we we, <laughs> we have this look, I, I think there's something like a half a million New Zealanders living in Australia. It's like it's like a huge portion of New Zeal of, of the New Zealand population live in Australia. <laughs> I mean, because it. But now, a lot of Australians are wanting to come to New Zealand because our economy is 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 doing okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. It, it is. It does feel like a sibling rivalry. New Zealand is the last habitable
0: landmass on Earth to be populated. We had we offered a lot of land incentives to the Irish, English, and the Scots. A lot of Dutch came over in the fifties. We're a very young country, like super young country. And in eighteen eighty, if I'm not mistaken, the population was something like 80% men in New Zealand, which is where all that mateship came from. Probably a few sheep jokes as well, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, we're super super young country. Yeah. Now, Australia had a tremendous number of criminals go there because England didn't want them, you know, that's the English for you. <laughs> oh, territory. let's send them way down there to that penile colony down in Australia. That'll yeah. fix them. <laughs> so they, they sent them down there. They're a, you know, rugged bunch. So, but don't ever confuse... New Zealanders and Australians, we don't like that. Yeah, we don't like well, that. Well, it's just like Canadians. Yeah, a lot of times just, don't. Be.
1: So I was going to say, does one get more offended than the other? Because, for instance, like if you call an American Canadian, we're like, ah, eh, whatever. Yeah, Canadians get very. Yeah. General, I love you guys. I think Canadians. we're probably well, more a lot sensitive. of Canadian friends, but Canadians are more sensitive.
0: I think I think New Zealanders are probably more sensitive yeah. about it. I, mean, I think Australians are, you know, they probably care
1: less than we do. <laughs> so, so I wanted to ask you about. Low expectations versus high expectations, because I remember a friend of mine, uh, Naval Ravikant, once uh, once said, he said, if you want to be happy, and I'm paraphrasing here, but if you wanted to be happy, spend time with people who are less successful than you. If you want to be successful, spend time with people who are more successful than you. Right. So you've spent a lot of time in New Zealand as well as in the U.S. I remember at one point when, and I'm dubious of how these things are determined, but the, the Danish beat out people in Bhutan and elsewhere to be voted the happiest People in the world. Wow. Now,
0: Bhutan was, is the, isn't it the kingdom of happiness? Well, they have the gross happy what is it? Happiness. Gross
1: national happiness. Yes. Which I think is actually just a propaganda tool to distract from lack of GDP growth, right. <laughs> among other things. But the point I was going to make is that I I asked a number of my Danish friends about this, and they said, <laughs> in effect, it's because we have such low expectations. That's why we're the happiest. <laughs> Our expectations are so low. Now. At the same time, you've achieved a lot, you've done a lot, and you've spent a lot of time in the U.S. where I, I would say a lot of people might argue that when expectations are higher and people expect you to do greater things, you do greater things. And clearly, when I'm looking at, and I'll, uh, I'll just read off a few examples here, if we look at some of the things that you've done, so No, no Opportunity Wasted, N-O-W, you have I mean, we could go on and on. I could just spend 20 minutes reading these, but put of golf... do that. I'm not going to do that. A golf ball across Scotland, finishing in St. Andrews. Complete the Leadville 100 mountain bike race. Uh, we're going to get to this in detail, but ride the 1928 Tour de France uh, on a fixed gear bike, correct? Yeah. I mean, they're the same equipment that was used. It actually, it was a single speed bike. Single speed, I'm sorry. Yeah. World record bungee jump with seven or eight adventure crazies. It just goes on and on and on. You have this long list. And if you had really, really low expectations could you actually set these types of goals and achieve them?
0: Well, I've never, it's not that I've ever had low expectations. But this is something I battle with personally, so
1: this, that's why i Yeah, I'm no, I've asking. never
0: had low expectations. I've always had this desire to do new and different. If there's one thing that I would like to be known for, it's that I'm prepared to try something new and different. I like to be surrounded by people who see, again, what they do have and what they can do as opposed to what they don't have and what they can't do. So nothing drives me crazier than being surrounded by people who immediately start with a wall of no or immediately start with not having the vision to see that the impossible can happen. Mm -hmm. And I've been lucky enough to be around people who have achieved extraordinary things and it feeds me. You know, Malcolm Bledwell says, anything new and different is most susceptible to market research. And I really feel that so many people apply potential and possibility based on what does it compare to? What can we compare it to? Will it work? There's a fixation on this idea of failure. I find people talk a lot about things failing in a negative way. I've failed so many times at so many things, but I try not to call them failures as much as I just call them giving it a go. And if there's one thing that I have, that I love about positive people is that they are prepared to give it a go. Positive people just are constantly putting themselves out there to fall on their face. And and eventually they stumble on something that works.
1: Do you have any favorite failures that come to mind? And what I mean by that is a a failure that somehow laid the groundwork for a later success? Does, does any, any particular failure come to mind in your mind or what uh, other people might consider a failure that actually was a, a blessing in disguise?
0: I've tried to put together, you know, early on in my career, I tried to put together show ideas that I thought would really work and they just didn't really work. But it was all the groundwork to be better the next time I tried to get something to work. Mm-hmm. And I've been involved with a lot of things that are pretty mediocre. But again, I really do believe in... Trying and trying and trying again, you know when I was young I learned how to play the violin when I was three years old with the Suzuki method Which was rote learning where you would be in a room with a whole bunch of people and you would play tunes over and over and over again And then eventually I could play by ear and when I was seven or eight my mom's a music teacher I learned how to read music and I became quite proficient at playing the violin I used to go to a music school in New York. I was living in the Caribbean I grew up in the caribbean i used to fly from antigua in the caribbean go up to this music school for up to nine
1: weeks this was and the travel was due to your your father's job
0: yeah my my dad my, my mom and dad traveled all over the world we lived four years in canada eight years in the caribbean we lived in south america through the caribbean lived in australia and i went to this school and 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 i was probably the worst musician out of all of these really talented kids i was strong enough to get into the school but certainly not the best and I remember being surrounded by this most extraordinary talent, some of the talent that has gone on to play in the New York Philharmonic. And, but a big part of playing the violin and being successful, particularly at that age, was just practice and practice and practice. I remember how hideous and horrible I sounded, you know, starting with some new pieces uh, early on. But you'd play and play over and over and over and over again. You could say that the first performances that I made were a failure. And then with all of the work and and the effort, you end up with something that sounds halfway decent. So I really do believe in the idea of perseverance. And I feel that a lot of people stop short at achieving goals because they're not prepared to risk failure. We analyze failure, particularly as we get older, more and more. So I always try to encourage that with my daughter, too, is say to her, give it a go. Just give it a go and see what happens. You never know where it's going to take you. And what you learn and what you fail at may help you with something else. You may not understand how they're related now, but five years from now, you're going to draw on that. It's about life experience and just Mm -hmm. putting your hand up and saying, yeah, I'll give it a go. And that's definitely something that is a New Zealand trait. Yeah, yeah, I'll give it a go. Fake it until you make it. I mean, that's a huge part of our psyche. Like, just give it a go. And I meet a lot of people who have way more talent than me at doing a lot of things, and I'm amazed at how reluctant they are sometimes to step up and just, and I'll pat them on the back. I'll go, Hey, you got this dude. Yeah. I'm, I'm prepared to give it a go. And you're better than me. Come on, get up there,
1: get amongst it.
0: Yeah. Get up there. <laughs> so I, I think that comes a lot from the way that we talk about it in our culture, you know, because we we, we celebrate success, mm-hmm. but I think we should also just celebrate people giving it a go,
1: give it a go. Definitely. Well, I think it, it's also dependent a lot on where you are, even within say the US. Yes. Where say I live in Silicon Valley, I live in San Francisco, yeah. where there is very much a supportive environment for yeah. giving it a go. Giving it a go. Yeah. And, and
0: those those people are on the cutting edge of they're like the pioneers of where we are at right now, trying new and different things. You know, you, the, the famous story of the guy who wrote up the idea for FedEx, you know, they all right. thought he was crazy, new and different, right? It was like, what do you mean? We're going to have these central packaging locations and you're going to fly everything. You're like, you're flying everything there and then you fly, front, but that doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah. I think he failed too. Yeah, you got to, you got to, I think you got to see or something. I feel like I want to say it was a business school yeah, final it was project. Yeah. School got, platform. Got, and, a, got a barely passing grade or something right. along those lines. Yeah.
0: And so, what, what my frustration is, a lot of people who are in decision making positions tend to be the least creative and the least visionary. They're much more about nuts and bolts and analyzing. And we would not have gone to the moon. We would not have done all the crazy things that we've done in this world if people did it based on what we knew at that time. Sure, we've done all these extraordinary things because some crazy people said, "I'm going to give it a go, and we'll see what happens."
1: If your daughter were putting together her own no opportunity wasted bucket list. Mm -hmm. And she said, dad, I'd love some help. How can I, can you help me make this as good as possible? So she already has say 30 things listed and she said, I'm worried some of these things are frivolous. I'm not really sure if they're good items to have on the list. How would you respond?
0: Well, first of all, there are two kinds of lists. I think one is the very personal list that you have that you might want to really keep secret because I do believe sometimes when you put things out into the universe or to other people, it can pick up momentum. And I also believe that sometimes if you put something out there, there are negative energies sometimes with some of the people that might hear of something you're trying to do and knock you down because maybe they have their own uh, frustrations or they have their own preconceived ideas about what's possible and they can put a black cloud over what it is you want to do. But I would say to my daughter, first of all, Believe anything is possible and give it a go. I remember when she was nine, she said, dad, I want to be a professional tennis player, a wildlife vet, and a photographer, professional photographer, professional photographer, wildlife vet, and professional tennis player. The rational part of my brain is thinking, how's that? Like if I was giving advice and she was about to make the choice that day or she was working out how she was going to do it you could say, well, that's not really practical because, listen, if you want to be a professional tennis player, it's going to take these, this many hours. If you want to be a photographer, it's going to be this. And if you want to be a wildlife vet, you're going to have to do this, that, and the... But instead, I remember making a deliberate effort to say, that's great. Where, how are you going to do this? Like, I wanted to understand what was in her head. She said, well, I was thinking I could work like on some kind of uh, research project. And then I could train, I could work out a way to train and then I could take photographs while I'm doing my work and then I could fly to Europe and I could play, you know, in the circuit there and, and then that would keep me really fit and focused and everything. And, and then I, at night I'll work on my photographs and then I'll go back and take pho- Like she had a, a, a vision in her head about how she was, who am I to say to her, it's not possible to do all of those things? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, maybe she will, you know, could have found a way to do that. I don't know. <laughs> so I wanted her to feel at that age, Yeah. Okay. Go for it. Give it a go. See what happens.
1: You know? So you are often associated, you're associated with a lot of things, but with The Amazing Race. How did you come to be part of that show?
0: It's a good story. I I came to America when I was 23, 24. I thought I wouldn't get arrested because I had a New Zealand accent at the time. And I was told nobody wants a New Zealand accent on television. And this is the early nineties. And they weren't wrong because... And then a guy took a chance on me, his name was Jack Sussman, who is now at CBS, and he gave, he gave me a shot to host a show on VH1, and that opened the door. And then once I got in, because none of my credentials from before in New Zealand meant anything in America, not like today where you could be a host of Dancing with the Stars in New Zealand and then use that to leverage getting work here, that they didn't understand. Oh, what's this show? That's fairly interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds exciting. <laughs> Sounds really exciting. Um, in America, we got that's incredible. Uh, so anyway, so th- th- um, there's a reason for me telling you that, just because he was he, later at CBS. Then I had this show where that was set up by an Australian by the name of Peter Feynman who directed Crocodile Dundee, and he was setting up FX Networks, and he took a chance on me to be one of the field people with that show I was telling you Tom Bergeron hosted, and I did that for four and a half, five years. So he took a shot on me because there were some people like, well, you're going to put a New Zealander on the air. But anyway, that gave, gave me a lot of American TV experience. And then we did a show together on Discovery Channel. And I worked with a cameraman who uh, shot this adventure series. It was called Phil Kogan's Adventure Crazy. It was following my list of things to do before I die. shot all around the world. That cameraman was being considered to shoot Amazing Race. And they looked at his footage. And saw me in his footage, and then said, "Who is that guy?" And the EIC, executive in charge of production on Amazing Race, had worked with me on that show, and he said, "Oh, that's Phil. I just was working with him." And I was CBS was aware of me because I had been passed over for Survivor. It was between Jeff Probst and I for that job, and a big concern again was that I was a New Zealander. And then finally, I, I remember I met with Les Mumbez and he said, this is the second time your name has come across my desk in the last, I think it was a year. And he said, I'm going to give you a shot. And I remember I got shortlisted down to three, then to two. And then the last had this conversation as Moves. And then I just had to get sign off from Jerry Bruckheimer and Bertram Van Munster and Elise Darganeri and, and Jonathan Lippman and the network and all the executives who were involved in the
1: show. And they said yes. And then I had a shot. <laughs> how, many, how many shows or how many episodes... Have, have you done at this point, would you say, if you were just guesstimating?
0: I'm guessing it's got to be 300
1: and 400. It's amazing. It's a lot. It's 29 seasons of 12 and 13 episodes a season. And those 12 or 13 episodes are each shot in a window of what? 21 Tw- days. That's insane.
0: So 12 shows in 21 days. That's the part that a lot of people don't realize is
1: how intense it is. Just the logistics, just getting the visas alone for everyone.
0: Yeah. I mean, the team that I work with, I... I lucky to be a part of a great team and going back to your point before about working i've been lucky enough that that's been my experience throughout my career that i've been surrounded by people who are better than me at doing certain things and as a team member you want to try to match the level of their input you want to be you want to be known as a valuable team player my grandfather always said that you could build a stereo system but the stereo system only sounds as good as the weakest link in the stereo system Same thing, I guess, with the chain, right? I mean, it's the same thing. And so you always want to be somebody who is higher up the chain, who is really a strong element in that team, in that framework, but never the, never the biggest chain, never the biggest target. Well, because, (laughs) but then you stop, then you, that's not a good feeling. And I've been, I've been in those situations where you feel like you're the most experienced in a team. And to be honest with you, I don't really like that. I really love looking across at somebody in a team that I'm on and going, "Man, they are so experienced and so much better." I've been working with 60 Minutes Sports and working with the people who produce 60 Minutes, and being surrounded by those storytellers, you know, you feel like you're 18 again and you're starting back at. Well, Square I remember
1: World. some advice that I was given quite a while ago, which was if you're the if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yeah, that's a good one. So, question to you about hosting: What are the most common mistakes? that come to mind, that novice TV hosts make?
0: I think where, where they make it about them. I think the best hosts, and again, this is only my opinion, the best hosts are the ones that can facilitate a conversation with the least number of words where you've done your research and, and then you basically are letting them go. Mm-hmm. You let them go. And you're, you're there to just keep things moving and you're there to make them look good. And the better you make them look, the better you are. Where I get turned off with some hosts is where they feel like they have to one-up the person that they're meant to be showcasing. Showcasing, yeah. And I see that a lot of times where, and it's finding that balance, the finding the balance of really connecting with the person, but ultimately letting them be the guest and giving them the last uh, say or the last word, I guess. You want to make them look good. You're focused on that.
1: Are there any particular hosts or television personalities, it could be radio, it doesn't matter you looked at or, or do look at as the epitome of that? Are there are there any role models that you grew up looking towards or even now are you say if, if you had to create sort of this, this super host and you could yeah. combine two or three people, do any names come to mind?
0: I love the way Jimmy Fallon plays with his guests, but he's always willing to back out and let him shine. He is really good at that. I, I just think that takes a real skill because he himself is so talented as a performer. But he has that ability to like step back and say, you're the star on my show, do your thing. Makes it, he, he really has a way of having fun and relaxing. And I think he's got so much better at it too. I think when he first started, he was trying to find his way. And now he's he sort of hit the sweet spot. What's interesting now is, is a lot, so many people are watching Colbert because he's got a much more of a political message. And people are gravitating towards that more than they are the fun Stuff, right? You you can see that in in the ratings. I love John Stewart's style. I love Colbert's style. I was a f- big David Letterman fan. I love Carson. I'm I'm sort of new to podcasts, so I've been listening to a lot of different podcasts. I was saying to you before, I love the the piece you did with Arnold. You know, <laughs> um, I like <laughs> I like that you're so well researched with your guests, and you draw stuff out and hit them with things that they don't necessarily see coming. Because I think preparation with a good host is so crucial. yeah. And and I'll tell you who else is, for a lot of people, it's surprising, and that's Howard Stern. He has a way of getting people to open up.
1: Yeah, Howard's a Jedi when it comes to...
0: He's really good. And I, I personally wasn't surprised because I've listened to him for a long, long time. My favorite part of what he does is talking to people. I love conversations. A good story, you could be sitting around a campfire, and if it's a good story, it just works. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the real measure of somebody who is a good host
1: so let's talk about stories for a second. Are there any particular books besides, besides your own that you've would that you gifted to people or that you recommend a lot to other people? Yeah.
0: Every year I read The Old Man and the Sea, the Hemingway. Yeah, great book. It's so easy to read and it, it is such a, a strong message. What do you get out of that book? Well, I left home pretty much at the age of 13 and went to boarding school and I haven't lived at home since then. And I've been independent for a long time. It forced me to grow up. And then I've, I've been financially responsible for myself since I was 18. So I grew up, I feel like I grew up, had to grow up really quickly. But And one of the reasons that I've set up so many adventures with my dad is because I missed a lot of time with him between 13 and 18. All those holidays through 13 to 18, in those really influential years, I had a lot of time with a, a grandparent, with my grandfather. My grandfather uh, was born in 1912. He was the The Ducks, uh, I don't know what you call it in America, but he was the brightest kid in his middle school.
1: Oh, he was the the valedictorian of his middle school?
0: Valedictorian, yeah, of his middle school. And he was given a a scholarship to go away to a college where they were, a a Catholic college in Christchurch, which was over the mountains, over the the Southern Alps in New Zealand. For one reason or another, he wasn't given that opportunity and didn't get to go to that school, go to high school. And he became a bike mechanic, in his teens, and very quickly put himself through becoming, becoming a, an A-grade mechanic, and then worked as a mechanic up until he was about 65, and he was at the same place for many, many years. But my grandfather was unbelievably smart and never got to fully realize his potential academically, but he used it he used his intellect in other ways. And I spent a lot of hours with him in his workshop where he was a gunsmith. He would fix guns. He would bed guns. He, he, he was absolutely meticulous, had the most incredible tools. If he didn't have the tool, he'd make the tool. This is in New Zealand. This is in New Zealand. If Not a place known for guns. Uh, well, a lot of people do have guns yeah. but for hunting. And right. my grandfather was a sharpshooter. Uh, actually, a number of my family members were, were sharpshooters in the war. But it was a, quite a big sport in New Zealand, target shooting. Sure. And, and, and he got me into it at a very young age. I, I made the New Zealand under 25 team when I was at 16, I think, with, with him being my coach. But I spent a lot of hours watching him. And, and, and target shooting is all about focus and discipline. You have to be so meticulous to be a good shooter. Dropping your heart rate, feeling, you know, connecting with the rifle and really seeing clearly and making sure you pull the trigger. it's like, there's so much involved. It's such a mental sport. Anyway, uh, I spent so much time with him and I learned so much from him. I think because of that, and, and, and he invented an outrigger sight. his friend went blind in his right eye and he was on the New Zealand team. He couldn't see out of his right eye. And my grandfather had a dream that if he built an outrigger sight if he moved the sight, the distance of the pupil between the right eye and the left eye, that this guy, Mars Callaghan, could, could look through his left eye, close his right eye, look through his left eye, and then had this outrigger sight that was off, offset by the distance of his pupil at the other end of the barrel, and he would be able to see and shoot. And sure enough, it worked. My grandfather got up in the middle of the night, built
1: it. That is hard to make.
0: That's... Yeah, and it, now you can buy it off the shelf. My grandfather never patented it. But that was how his brain worked. And so I think because of that relationship, I have a tremendous amount of respect for older people who have so much to give. And age discrimination to me is is one of the biggest crimes that we have, where there's such a focus on young and this is the new thing and this is the new way and we need young people. And I'm all about that because young is new and different. I'm all about that. But I'm also a firm believer that we are wasting a tremendous amount, a tremendous talent pool of people in this country who could share their wisdom and their life knowledge with young people who maybe have lost their way or where we tap into that resource. And yeah, it, it's, it's sort of very sad to me. When I, hear, when I hear it and I see it, I see it a lot in my business. Oh, we don't want the, the guy who's 60 who wrote the script. We want the 25-year-old kid he has got this great idea. Well, yeah, sometimes... <laughs> that guy who's been writing for 10,000 hours actually might be able to offer
1: you something. Yeah, for sure. <laughs>
0: Maybe we can learn from that guy.
1: <laughs> so you mentioned the the marksmanship. You're, you also have a long history with cycling mm-hmm. and uh, have done quite a lot <laughs> on two wheels. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your latest uh, documentary? And what I'd love for you to comment on is how you chose this project and choose projects in general, because you have many different options. You can do many different things. So how do you choose something like this to focus on? And can you tell us a little bit about it?
0: You know, I think one of the reasons that this project came about is I feel I'm, I feel I'm open to anything happening at any moment. I believe in magic. I believe, I believe in not planning too much ahead being receptive to what might come tomorrow or who I might meet and being open to the possibilities that come from those meetings and books I read. And so I found this book at an airport. It was a tiny little book with some publisher that I'd never heard of, written by some guys that I'd never heard of. And it said the first New Zealander to ride in the Tour de France 1928, seven-time New Zealand champion Harry Watson from Canterbury, New Zealand. I'm like, hold on a second. I love cycling. I love cycling history. How, how do I not know who this guy is? I read the book in one sitting, and I know some professional cyclists. I emailed them and said, you ever heard of this guy, Harry Watson? They were like, Harry who? Seven-time New Zealand champion. So I read the book, and then I find out that this guy, Harry Watson, used to go over to Australia and ride in these races with the best riders in Australia, and there was only one guy over there who could beat him, and they would go back and forth winning races. But he would go over there and take part in these amazing thousand mile races, come back to New Zealand, not say a word to anybody. <laughs> would never make it into the press. It would make it in the press that he won like a New Zealand championship. But nobody had any really, real idea of the caliber that this guy was riding at. He had records that stood for like 50 years in New Zealand. And I just became so fascinated with the idea that this guy was the epitome of What we talk about when we talk about an understated New Zealander, like you don't talk about your achievements, you don't show off about your achievements. Like he was the poppy that, well, he never actually grew up to be chopped off. He just went and achieved things and just kept it all really low.
1: Low profile.
0: Low profile. So I looked at it and then I started doing some research and and this is with my wife and I'm a producer partner. And the more we researched, the more we realized The 1928 Tour de France had the first English-speaking team that competed, and it was this one New Zealander and three Australians went six weeks at sea all the way to France with one set of rollers between them on these old heavy steel bikes, rocked up there to the start line in Europe. And the Europeans were like, what the hell are you doing here? Where have you come from, you guys? Do you not realize that we're the best riders in the world? The toughest sporting event on earth? You're going to come here and try to school us? Who, Who are you guys? And um, they were only four guys that were meant to team up with six other riders to make a team of 10 like all the big riders. But the other riders didn't turn up. The sponsors (laughs) fell through. So now they're over on the other side of the world, four against 10. And 15 of the 22 stages were team time trials. But they refused to give in. Press wrote them off. Everybody wrote them off. And they decided they were going to race. And it's not like, you know... You could send out a tweet and say, "Hey, I'm looking for some riders," or yeah. you know call up, they just couldn't get it together." So there were four there at, this, at, the, at the starting line. And the sad part of it all is that this story has all been lost because they've been, they're gone. And it started digging around, digging around. And uh, I thought, you know what? The only way to I, this story needs to be told, because it's like these unforgotten underdogs. The highest attrition rate in Tour de France history in 1928. It was brutal. I thought the only way to really tell the story is I need to find one of those old bikes that they rode. I need to find the old route. I need to find where they went. I need to go and ride it, stick to the same schedule, and then juxtapose 2013, my ride, with their ride in 1928. Match up old photographs, look for old footage, and tell this story so that it isn't forgotten. It was like, not like it was ever really known in New Zealand, but like that we tell the story.
1: What is the name of the documentary?
0: It's called Le Ride.
1: Le Ride.
0: Le Ride. (laughs) And and I made another film called The The Ride, Ride. not to be confused with That Ride, which was across America. Yeah. I I need to get more creative with the names, I think. (laughs) It was the hat. You can in South America. It's El, El Ride. See, I had The Ride on my hat. And I thought if I just, you know, all I have to do is just change, you know, one, I just have to take out two letters, put an L there and boom, I've got the same hat.
1: Ready to rock and roll. (laughs) So how, how long was the course then?
0: 3,338 miles, an average of 150 miles a day. Not flat ground. This was brutal. Single speed bicycles, marginal brakes, bikes that weigh twice as much as a modern bike does today. 132,000 vertical feet. The death stage, by the time they'd got through eight stages, they went from 168 starting in Paris to 100 after eight stages. By the time they finished the death stage, the ninth stage, the winning time in 1928 was 18 and a half hours. It was 200 and something miles and over 20,000 vertical feet in one day, over five major climbs in the Pyrenees that separates uh, Spain and France. 18 and a half hours, the winning time. What was really cool about this story was, this is 1928. This is 10 years after World War I. Nothing has or has had more impact on New Zealand than World War I. 10% of the New Zealand population went to Europe, went to Gallipoli, went to all these places in Europe to fight alongside Mother England in World War I. 10%. Imagine that. On ships, they traveled to the other side of the world to fight So everybody has lost relatives or has a relative who fought in the war. So the French people remembered the Anzacs, the Australian and New Zealand troops that had only been in France 10 years before, fighting in the trenches in northern France against the Germans. They remembered that sacrifice. So when the French people realized that this small, untested, underdog team were taking on the best riders in the world and that they were going to ride around France... They got out on the streets and they cheered this underdog team and they not only won over the public, they then won over the French press and then they won over the other riders. And by the end of the ride, three out of those four riders made it around France. Only 42 riders out of 168 riders made it. They made it with four against 10. That's insane. Is and world-class riders. Like these guys were world-class, but that nobody knew. If you were to say that, like, if that was a headline in New Zealand that they made it, people, I mean, I just don't think in New Zealand people understand, because cycling is such a complicated sport, I'm not sure if they truly understand the significance of how incredible that achievement is. And he's not in the Sporting Hall of Fame, Harry Watson. I think he should be. If he was an all-black, if he was a rugby player, he would be. So Hubert Opperman, on the other hand, was knighted sir hubert opperman he was a politician he was instrumental in getting rid of the white australia policy so he was in there's statues for him in australia but in new zealand this guy who's from my hometown there's nothing and i'm trying now to raise the money to put a, a permanent fixture in christchurch over one of the cycle ways to for us never to forget him but the film is certainly helping
1: <laughs> where can people find the film
0: phil mm-hmm. and and my name is a crazy
1: spelling. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes for people so they can find it. Yeah, I, I can't even spell my name. Sometimes it's so hard to spell. So I encourage people to check it out. I watched the trailer. And uh, just the very beginning when you guys are riding on these old rickety bikes across cobblestones just getting started.
0: Yeah, not, not <laughs> and a good idea. And you're like, I can I like just say this is not a good idea, by the way? <laughs> I, I mean, it, yeah, not a good idea. Try, to try to make a movie while you're taking on the biggest physical and mental challenge of your life, not a good recipe for making them. That's just not a good thing to do. (laughs) That death stage I was telling you about? Yeah. Took us 23 and a half hours to finish. We had seven stages over 200 miles on those old bikes with no gears. It was really... I, I jacked my hip up for like about 15 months. I had like this crazy pain... In my hip. I couldn't get rid of it until I got a standing
1: desk, by the way. That's what fixed standing it. Standing desk. I got a standing desk, boom, within three weeks. All right, so let's talk about a few things like that because before we started recording, you pulled up a microphone because we were looking at my current audio setup, which is a Zoom H6 with some basic XLR Great setup, cables. By the way. Thank you. Very simple. Uh, as um, Morgan Spurlock put, put it to me, uh, once you get fancy, fancy gets broken. This is not fancy. I have a Shure SM58. Stage mics here. He's an interesting guy, isn't he? He is an interesting guy.
0: We were on Oprah together once.
1: Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. That must have been a trip.
0: 2001, that was the first time I met him. With 2001, we were both on Oprah. On Oprah. Oprah.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's that's a hell of a place to meet. And you brought up a microphone because you often have to do pickups, audio on the road. A lot. And it's a sure mv88 digital stereo condenser mic which plugs right into the lightning port on an iphone
0: recommended to me by the guy who mixed la ride the, the our film really talented guy he actually also mixed hidden figures mm-hmm. he's a passionate cyclist and yeah i just uh i thought well if this guy says it's good it's
1: got to be good and you tested it out i've uh, i'm always curious about travel mic options, because even with the amount of gear that I have, it weighs a lot uh, to, to, to truck around and carry around this stuff. But what other gear or tools are must-haves for you when you're on the road? Are there any, any particular, maybe non-obvious uh, gizmos, gadgets, ways of packing, not packing, anything that comes to mind that, uh, that you've found is necessary for your survival on the road when you're doing these 12 episodes in 20 days? I'm not going to call it a death march, but I mean, it's intense travel schedules.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I get that question from people about what to pack, what to travel. I am crazy about technology. Like I love technology so much. My first job I mentioned was a, as a film camera assistant, I had to, and, and then watching my grandfather as a gunsmith and then being a camera assistant was great because you had to be so meticulous about looking after the gear. I always have been enamored with what's the latest, greatest craze and what can you do with technology? a friend of mine says it's great. isn't it great living in the future and i totally agree with him I think it's so important to keep up with the technology and just how you and I are sharing. Oh, this try this mic, this is great. And then yeah. I see your setup, and you know, every you keep learning all the time, right? You see yeah. how people do things and how people pack. And yeah. the cameraman that I've been working with for 25 years, every time I see him, he he and I are big repurposers. Yeah. So we we were like we love finding the best ways to repurpose things, new ways of doing things, and and a big part of that is is in technology. That said, I'm also old school. I also have had a moleskin diary uh, that i write into that i've had for 30 years so i'm, I'm kind of like when you see my the stuff that i travel with i have like really old school you know paper and pencil and then all the way through to the latest technology so this film that we shot Le Ride we shot was the first documentary ever shot on a Sony F55 4K camera that at that stage it never shot a f- feature film, you know, the equivalent of super 35 millimeter in digital. Right. And and then beautiful Angino glass, glass and that sort of thing. I think you're crazy to travel without some means of capturing video or audio. I am amazed at what, without mentioning a name, but I'm amazed at what a smartphone can mm-hmm. do. It blows my mind. I've, you know, the new phone that I have has two lenses in it. The, the The audio quality is extraordinary. I just shot this project for Smithsonian in 4K. We're actually doing it in UHD. And there's a shot that I needed. And I was sitting somewhere where there's no way I was gonna get a camera there in time or in the space where I was. And I pulled out this cam, this phone, set it to 4K and we cut it in as a quick cutaway shot. On my phone it's I love that,
1: yeah, it is amazing, and I
0: love that I can five o'clock in the morning walk out into my dad's garden with a, this little microphone, plug it into my phone, mm-hmm. and be standing there surrounded by all
1: these birds, and you heard the quality no, it's outrageous, I, I just love it so what would what would be let's just say a purchase of less than a hundred dollars if something comes to mind that has most positively impacted your life in recent memory?
0: less than a hundred dollars, yeah, probably. The biggest impact for something less than $100 would be a Moleskine Diary. Moleskine Diary. Yeah, I've, had, I've got them all lined up from every year since... I've had them since 1986. So in there, in a very tactile way, movies... I I have like lists in the back, movies, books, and then I write in the back the name of the book and then who recommended the book. And then I make a little note and then I tick them off. And then when I've read the book, I write to the person who recommended the book and they be like, I recommended that? And I'll be, yeah, you did. And then I'll tell them where and when.
1: So and you have an why. index of books and movies in the back of the diary.
0: In the back of the diary. And then every year, if there's something that I haven't read or found in that year, like sometimes some really obscure things, I'll transfer those over into the next year. But now Molskin has this crazy pen that has a little camera on it that records everything you write digitally on paper, and then you can email, like you and I could be talking, I'm writing some notes, just like your book there. And then I just tap the pen on a little uh, envelope icon and I can text it, email it, post it, whatever. And it's recorded on, when when you go back, it's all recorded back on your computer.
1: Yeah, that's very cool. I use uh, a a tool called Evernote and something called Penultimate for similar purposes. What do you write in your journal in the sense that do you sit down at a set time? Do you tend to every night sit down and diary? I'm not a diary
0: guy like that as much as it's more just ideas or sketches. I I just came up with a new name for something that I'm, for a brand that I'm wanting to explore developing. I just wrote down the name. It was a sort of free association and I arrived on this name and I was like, boom, I, I love this name. And then I went and looked it up and it was available. And so then I, you know, did a trademark, uh, on it. And then I started sketching with it. So a lot of times it's just fleshing out ideas. Mm -hmm. I also use it for meetings. Uh, So every time I meet with somebody, I put the date, I put the time, my mother taught shorthand. I wish I'd learned from her, but, uh, I I write down key elements of the meeting. A lot of times I can remember the pages so I'll go, oh, that's right, I met with Tim. When was that? Oh, yeah, that was, we met in 16. And then I'll go back into the diary. Again, they're all chronological, and I can remember roughly, or I'll just look it up in yeah. my calendar. That's the easy way. But a lot of times I'll challenge my brain. I'll go, yeah, it was April, and then flick through to that part and look at the notes.
1: That's what uh, Robert Rodriguez, filmmaker, director, writer, yeah. and so on, uh, also does. He He keeps copious notes. On, i love notes on meetings and then he transfers them i think to a word doc at roughly midnight uh, ah. he, and that way he's able to go back and search which yeah. you could do with some of these newer technologies well he well. would
0: love this moleskin diary yeah. because it's the same thing yeah. but he wouldn't have to double transfer because right. it converts it into text.
1: automatically converts it yeah let him know <laughs> i will he's here in austin Phil, this has been uh, great fun. Where can people, and of course, I'll put this in the show notes as well for people listening, but where can people say hello to you on social or elsewhere? A
0: lot of people contact me through Twitter. It's just my name, at Phil Kogan.
1: Yeah. Can you my, spell that for those people out there who are, yeah. who are spelling you challenged? You really think they're going to remember this? Okay. <laughs> I, I, my, my listeners are bright people. All we'll right. See. So
0: Phil, it's the ordinary Phil, P-H-I-L, and then Cogan, which is K-E-O-G-H-A-N. And my, uh, website is just my name, philcogan.com and
1: they can find you. Yeah. People
0: have a way of finding me somewhere. (laughs) somewhere.
1: (laughs) Well, Phil, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate you. Yeah. Listen, it's great to be here. Yeah. I
0: know you've talked to a lot of really cool people and it's nice to be here. Spend some
1: time with you. Likewise. No, I mean, these are great stories and everybody listening. Think about 3 PM tomorrow. Yeah. That's your deathbed what are you going to say? I wish I had, I wish I could put together that list. And, uh, also as always, you can find links to everything we've talked about the new film and where you can find film, everything, uh, where you can find film, where you can find film and Phil yeah, and everything and, and everything else, the uh, old man in the sea and so on in the show notes at, uh, tim.blog forward slash podcast. And you can also find every other episode and until next time, thank you for listening. it out, just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Headspace, the world's most popular meditation app. I have it on my phone, I use it all the time when I'm in Ubers, when I'm in airplanes, when I'm in those in between spaces, and I want to do some good for myself. Across all of the guests that I've had on this podcast, more than 80% have the common behavior, the common habit of some type of meditative practice. It does not have to be complicated or expensive. Headspace is meditation made simple. I've used it for hundreds of sessions myself. It provides guided meditations that you can use whenever you want, wherever you want, whether on your phone, computer, or tablet. They have sessions that focus on everything from decreasing stress and anxiety to eating healthier, sleeping better, and even being more creative. But I suggest you keep it simple, simple, simple. This has had a huge impact on my life. Try their Take 10 program. It is fantastic. 10 minutes of guided meditation a day for 10 days. It costs you nothing. Try it out. And I promise, and I don't do this very much, that you will see a significant benefit from it. Download the Headspace app and train your mind for a happier, healthier life. Learn more at headspace.com forward slash Tim. That's headspace.com forward slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by me undies, which I'm wearing right now. I've spent the last year or so wearing underwear from these guys nearly 24 seven, except when I'm having fancy time and they are the most comfortable and colorful underwear I have ever owned. If you can imagine really awesome graffiti that you've seen in cities like LA or elsewhere, then turned into a print and put onto underwear, you get the idea. There's also some weird stuff like Halloween-themed camo, which I have for myself. MeUndies, designed in LA and made from sustainably sourced micro-modal. Why is this important? It's three times softer than cotton, and you feel that difference on your loins, ladies and gentlemen, if they feel Great. And if you don't love your first pair of MeUndies, they'll hook you up with a new pair or a refund. Uh, what kind of person sends in used underwear back to someone? I don't know. That makes you a strange person. Maybe you should sell them in Japan or something. But if you love the product, and they make a great gifts also, and for those people wondering, I go boxer briefs. If you love it, they have a subscription offer where you can save up to 33% after your first pair. So check it out, MeUndies.com forward slash Tim. You can see some of my favorite underwear and uh, also plenty for the ladies that's meundies.com forward slash tim